0: If you look at your handout, let me just review for you. If you're just joining us this morning, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. Uh, These messages are all purposed to be together for the purpose of communicating what the church is. But I'm just going to give you a brief summary now of of messages 1 through 4, and 4 will be today. So first, the first part of our membership series was just an introduction, recognizing the fact that membership is a strange thing for many people in our valley. Many people in our Valley would look at church membership as being kind of odd, uh, not something that's regularly practiced, wondering why would we practice that. And so our first message in the membership series was just to deal with that question and looking at the scripture to say, "Is this biblical?" And so if you remember, we had two points. Point number one, being all Christians are called by God as individuals to be members of the body of Christ and to function together by the power of the Spirit. And that is biblical truth as we look at that and work through that together. Second, then being, as you define that, we must recognize membership in Christ's church is not ambiguous. It is not ambiguous. It is specific according to God's design and provision for His body in love. That God has specifically designed the church to function according to His will and His love for us. Then over the following weeks, in two through what will be five, question mark, maybe longer, who knows? But if you look on your handout, part two through five, uh, we used Hebrews 10 to work for us Uh, to declare to us those things which we are called to do as a church. And this is a summary. It is not all comprehensive, but using this kind of as a launching point for our membership series, we're going to look at three things, our direction as a church, our doctrine as a church, and our devotion as a church, pulling that from Hebrews 20, uh, 1022, let us draw near. Our direction should be fully assured in the gospel, running toward Christ with confidence that he has saved us. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, the doctrine in, in which he has taught us, which he has given us what we confess. And then lastly, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, our devotion to the local church. So this week, uh, we will continue starting our doctrine. What is the doctrine of the church? What should be the doctrine of the church? Uh, How should we handle and how should we think about doctrine as Christians? These are important questions, questions that I don't think are asked often enough, questions that are not discussed enough, and I'm excited to discuss that this morning. So let's pray for the grace of God uh, that He would give wisdom and clarity Uh, From my study and through my words, that he would be honored and glorified, that our hearts would be changed by the power of his spirit and his word. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. I pray, Father, that you would by grace do what you faithfully do uh, many, many weeks and and you do all over our valley this morning and in our country and and the world uh, to care for and to love your people through the teaching of your word. I pray, God, you would give wisdom and clarity to my words. I pray that you would guard my tongue, that you would help me to uh, to know those things which would be said, Father, that you would not uh, make me a slave to what I have planned, but to what you have purposed. Uh, And I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you would give clarity this morning and that you would change hearts by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would do this, Lord, for the sake of your name. For your glory, that Christ would be exalted in all things and in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this week, this morning, our doctrine. Looking at uh, what it is we hold as doctrine as a church. You, you might think of, I asked one of my children this morning, what do you think of when you hear doctrine? And she said, I think of doctor," but I don't think that's the right answer. Uh, and you might hear the word doctrine and think, what is that? It just means teaching. Doctrine is teaching. It is the content of teaching, not the act. So doctrine is what do you teach? So we have a document called WWT, What We Teach, uh, and it lays out in that our doctrine. It lays out our purpose that we've talked about, our philosophy that we've discussed, and then the last section of that is our doctrine. What do we teach? What, what is the teaching that we hold to? As you look at that, we have first the essential truths. We have the essential truths of doctrine. Uh, And if you look at your handout, you will see one through six. We'd say these are the essential truths. These are what all Christians must confess. Number one, we believe that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, His virgin birth, His sinless life, His miracles, His vicarious and atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his personal return in power and glory. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit by those, by whose indwelling every Christian is enabled to live a godly life. We believe the Bible is the inspired and errant, complete and authoritative word of God. We believe that all men are hopelessly lost sinners and must turn to Christ in saving faith and repentance through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, being drawn solely by God's grace. And we believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, the saved to eternal life with Christ, and the lost to eternal punishment in hell. This is the essential truths of our doctrinal statement. Uh, It is not the entirety of our doctrinal statement. This is a brief preface to our doctrinal statement Our doctrinal statement is 60 pages long um, as I repaged and renumbered some things. It is a long doctrinal statement. And that is often a question that we get uh, as we're talking about membership. Why is it so long? It is often something people might not ask but think. Why does this church have this massive doctrinal statement? Why, Why do you have to have all of this stuff? People generally assume that having doctrine and having clear particular doctrine can be divisive. And because it is divisive, they avoid it. Many churches' doctrinal statements end with something similar to our six essential truths. Um, and I, I didn't want to just say that, assuming that that's true. I did a lot of searching this week, looking at various churches in our valley and other places, looking, and the, the broad majority would have six to maybe nine statements about what they believe that are broad Christian truth and good truth, faithful truth. These are important and truthful things. What we would see is the problem with that is that though they are being faithful in the truth they are proclaiming, uh, it is so concise it is shallow in its clarity. There is not a lot of clarity in what they believe on what are important things. Not essential truths to be saved, but essential for the Christian life. Essential to live as Christians. Essential to understand how to live and function. The church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is to be the light to the world. It is purposed and designed to function. And we need doctrinal truth to do so. It's not unfaithful or not untrue to have such a brief doctrinal statement, Uh, but I don't think it is wise. I think it is rooted in in a mistake thinking uh, that this is all people can handle. Uh, This is all the truth that they can digest. I think summary is good. Summary is helpful. Uh, We should have some summary of doctrine To help us to understand. Uh, But God, it appears, thinks that we can do a lot more reading than we do, right? He seems to think uh, that there is more necessary for us. And we could say, in reality, to have a revelation from God, this is pretty concise, right? But this is something that is deep and and clarifying, uh, something that has rich history in it, that is written in both narrative and prose and all these things for the people of God. And it is important, as all churches do, to define what they believe. But I think it needs to be defined more clearly for the good of the church and for the clarity of the gospel. Churches need to have clarity on their doctrine. So there is the possibility that we have also come to believe that doctrinal clarity leads to disunity. And so churches have decided to limit their doctrinal statements because they want to be unifying. They don't want to cause division. They, they want clarity, but they want broad clarity to include as many people as possible. And I want to discuss that with you this morning because I think the mistake there is the goal is about inclusivity and not unity. Inclusivity is bringing as many people as possible. It's removing all hindrance to to not blockade anyone from being part of something and coming. And so we want to be vague or ambiguous because we want the most amount of people to be able to come together. It's not motivated by unity as much as it is by inclusivity. I don't think that's the intention, uh, but I think we're believing a lie that doctrinal clarity means disunity. So we have chosen then to be ambiguous to increase the appearance of unity. But instead, we are replacing unity with inclusivity. We are deciding to do what will allow the most people to come rather than what will bring the most clarity to God's people to live and to be faithful It is also possible that because we are lazy, uh, we, we want something concise that people will actually read, right? I don't think there is any question that we are a lazy people. We have hours and hours to spend on media, but it is difficult for most of us to take 15 minutes to read. If, if we send something or, uh, or we receive something that is more than just a couple pages, we go, whoa, hey, you don't got to write a whole essay. This is an high school. We, we are a lazy people. We want to be spoon fed things quickly and easily. We don't want a lot of depth or clarity. We are a lazy people. So I don't bring this up. My goal is not to say that we are better than other churches. Uh, but rather that as American Christians, we have become far too comfortable with shallow and ambiguous faith. We've become far too comfortable with being shallow and ambiguous in our faith, even at the point of leadership. That we're willing to communicate some, some truths of God in a very shallow way. The truths are not shallow, but the depth of ex- explanation is shallow. There's not a lot of clarity. Why must we have clarity? It's important that we have clarity. We have been given the grace of God to know things. And though it seems humble at times to say, well, we're just going to put these broad truths out there. and, And we can't say we have clarity on anything else because that would be divisive with people. And so who are we to divide people? Well, we want to be clear about God's word and we want to be responsible to those things which he has given us. I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a helpful passage for this. It says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That is comforting. That is something we can take rest in. Those things that you don't understand, that you don't know, they belong to God, right? Why did 2020 happen? The whole world is asking that question. That's God's providence. What, what does he have planned? What has he accomplished? What has he done? We can see some things, but he didn't give us any revelation that said this is what 2020 was for. Those secret things belong to God. But the passage doesn't leave everything secret. It says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever that we may do all the words of this law. So the people of Israel were given a responsibility. They were given revelation from God. And that was true in the time of Deuteronomy. As Moses wrote to the people of God, it was true. They were given revelation. And those secret things belong to God. The long term, the, the daily plans, those things are his. He doesn't tell us everything. He has not left us without any knowledge. Those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we would know them and do them. He has revealed much. He has made much known. It is not for us to give up the responsibility of any clarity in teaching saying, well, you know, God's the only one that really knows everything. Yes, it is true. And he has given you information. And you ought to be responsible with that. We ought to be responsible with that. And so it is with those reasonings and those thoughts that uh, we believe that doctrine is important. There is a need for extensive clarity in doctrine for the unity of the church, both locally and universally. Let me explain what I mean by locally and universally. The local church is what we are, right? It's a local gathering of people brought together for a purpose. The universal church is all Christians called, all called by Christ. And so the church is both universal and local. The church is both all Christians called. One day we will be ever God's forever God's people together, all Christians, not universally all people, all Christians, all called by his, but we function currently as local churches. So when we talk about the church, we want to clarify, are we talking about universal church, all Christians who have ever lived, been saved and called by Christ, or are we talking local church? And both of these, the universal church and the local church, need clarity of doctrine. They need extensive clarity. We cannot afford to be lazy, and we cannot afford to be ambiguous. It is not faithful. Number one, we can't afford to be lazy. If you look at your handouts on the second page, we have warnings. We cannot afford to be lazy. We cannot afford to be those that say, you know what, it's broad, and and who's to debate, and who's to argue, who's to discuss doctrine." Jesus says in two gospels, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. John 14.6, you're probably familiar with Jesus' statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In the book of Luke and the book of Mark, it says that many will come to him and they will say, Lord, Lord. Did we not do these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me because you never knew me. You workers of unrighteousness. There are grave warnings that we must hold clearly the truth is which God has given us. Yes, Christ is the narrow gate. Christ is the only way. But that does not mean we should remain in our relationship with Christ who is the narrow gate. Christ who is the only way. Christ who is the Lord. Shallowly. With ambiguity. With ambiguity. As though he has spoken nothing to us, we must have clarity about what he has commanded. We need this clarity because what he has commanded. In Matthew 28, 18, we looked at last week the whole passage. I want to remind you of the end of that passage. As he says, to make disciples of all nations. He says, making disciples is... Uh, is going, evangelizing, communicating the truth, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So ambiguity provides inclusivity of the nations. When Jesus says, go, therefore, to the nations, right? Go, like speak to all, be the nations. We see that and we go, wait, wait, our job is to include everybody. Our job is to get everybody in. So we want to be as broad as possible to make it as easy as possible. We, we don't want to draw any lines. We, we don't want to have any clarity. But we fail in the second command. Ambiguity provides inclusivity of all nations, but it fails in unity. As disciples are called to be unified in something. In Christ. Ambiguity provides inclusivity for all nations, but fails in unity. As disciples learning to obey all that he has commanded. Too often in our time, we are confused that the job of the church is to bring everyone together. The job of the church is to proclaim the gospel, and through that, Christ will call the nations. We are to be inclusive in the proclamation of the gospel. But the work and the path of the gospel is exclusive. It is Christ and Christ alone. Our unity is not found in all of our ideas. Where is our unity found? In learning and following and being faithful to the teaching of Christ. To what he has called us to do. So we cannot be those who keep a broad explanation of everything. Ambiguous in all truth. Saying there's only this broad essential truth and we can't have clarity in anything else. It would be divisive. We would be dividing from people. He has come to divide people. Jesus says he did not come to to have peace. He came to divide, that he would turn mother against father. Why? What does he mean by that? It's because the truth is clear and people will reject and deny the gospel. They will divide themselves by the clear proclamation of the gospel. And if we try to be ambiguous about what the truth is, what the gospel is, what it means to be a Christian, we are making way for people to think they are included when they are really divided, when they really want nothing to do with Christ. They just want broad truth. They're okay with the ideas of the broad essential truth, but when they're called to be made a disciple, to learn to obey everything he has commanded, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who do you think you are to tell me that I have to obey everything the Bible says? And the problem is we we don't think, no Christian would say that out loud, but somehow we have come to believe that if we have any clarity of knowledge, if we grow in our knowledge, if we pursue to have more clarity of knowledge, if we pursue to take clear doctrinal stances, we are being foolish and arrogant. We live off of one proverb, knowledge puffs up, right? And so we think that means we should not pursue knowledge. That that is a failed interpretation of scripture. Knowledge is not the enemy. Knowledge and arrogance will puff up. Knowledge at all times does puff up in the sense that it gives knowledge and understanding. And were it not for the spirit, knowledge would only puff up. But we have the Spirit of God. We should not be those who are fearful of knowledge. We need to be clear about all he has commanded because we don't, want, uh, we don't want anyone to be confused about what the Word of God says. And we want everyone to go to the Word of God to have clarity on what he's commanded. But for some reason, as churches and individuals, we think if we have any clarity about what he's commanded, we're being too arrogant because we don't want to tell anyone they're wrong. It's assumed if we tell them they're, they're wrong, we are talking over them. We're taking authority over them rather than just proclaiming the truth of Scripture. But it's not wrong to have knowledge. It's not wrong to pursue knowledge. It is actually prayed by Paul as we looked at in Ephesians. And I want to point you this morning to Colossians where he prays the same. It's throughout Scripture. We're told to get knowledge, to pursue knowledge, to be after knowledge. And so we should pray for that as Paul does in Colossians 1, 1.9. 1, 9 through 12. And so from the day we heard, so since Paul heard they were believers, we've not ceased to pray for you. What have they praying? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So to be filled with the knowledge of his will, to have spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would know the truth, that they would understand it, not just in getting knowledge, but to have the spiritual ability to apply that knowledge, to be faithful in it, to be obedient, and why? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So why do we want to? As a means of maturing. Verse 10 says that, they, that you would have knowledge and spiritual wisdom, the ability to apply that knowledge spiritually, why? So that you can live in such a way that pleases God and is glorifying to God that brings Him glory, that pleases Him. And then how do we do this? Well, maturing is bearing fruit in Him. We see that in verse 10. Maturing is bearing fruit, right? Increasing in the knowledge, increasing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. In verse 11, maturing in Him in bearing fruit with knowledge is through dependence upon him, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. So you are to pursue knowledge. Paul prays that they would have knowledge. For what purpose? That they would gain spiritual wisdom. By the Spirit of God, they would be able to apply it. How can they do all of this? Does it they all need to go to college? They all, they all need to get educated, right? They all need to go to the right school, the right seminary, the right things. No, they need to be in the Word of God and they need to depend on God because by His strength, by His power, by His glorious might, you can endure with patience and joy, giving thanks to God who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. So Paul is praying, not that they would be ambiguous, not that they would just have a a broad understanding of things, but that they would have an increasing knowledge of who God is, that they might be matured and bring Him glory and glorify Him in all things, that He would be pleased, that good works would be done, that they would be fruitful, that the gospel would be proclaimed. So we ought to pray for that. We also ought to practice it. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 but we see that the church is designed to be this for people, to be a source of knowledge or equipping that they would have understanding to be fruitful and faithful. We together are to do this. Look with me at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verses 11 and 12, the church is designed by God. It's designed by God. He gave leadership. He gave the apostles. He gave the clarity of the truth. He gave those to proclaim it. And he gave shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. All of this is equipping of the saints to grow in maturity. How do they grow in maturity? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith, so the unity of our dependence, our belief, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that we would grow and be faithful. God gave these gifts to equip the saints for ministry, that we might grow in maturity. The church also stabilizes believers in the truth. Look at the warning here. The negative warning is that the church exists and is a gift from God for what purpose? So that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. This has been important for the church for all times. There have always been false teachers. The world has always existed with those who will lie and deceive. Those who are deceived and deceiving. Those who have philosophies of man and traditions of men and confusion of what is true. That has always existed. But Christian, I think you are in more danger today of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine than you have at any time. Because we believe in inclusivity, not unity. How does this function in your life? When you have a biblical question, what do you do? Do you go to God Answers? Do you Google it? Do you try to see what everybody's opinion is on this passage? Or rather, just on the topic, you don't even go to the passage? You just type it into Google. And what happens when you type it into Google? By their algorithm you are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every teaching of man, every kook living in his parents' basement that thinks they have a theology degree to write blogs. Or, Every faithful believer who is writing for the good of the church and putting it on the internet so it's available. But how do you know which one you're getting? You don't know. You don't know if that was written by a good and faithful Christian for the good of the church or by a kook living in his parents' basement. You have no idea. We turn to every wind of doctrine, every back and forth, every tossing to and fro. We have a question. We have no depth to the answer. We have nowhere to turn. We feel. And so what do we do? We go to Google and then Google tosses us in whatever direction. And in doing so, what do we decide? Well, we think, I I should come to the conclusion of this. I should be the one that figures this out. I have to weigh all the options and then make the decision. Well, there is one sense in which that is very true. But the options are what God has said. Not what every man and every person has said. You need to turn to the Word of God. Our doctrine must be rooted in the truth of the Scripture. And so I am not saying, look, you foolish Christians, you use Google. I use Google all the time, right? I looked at tons of documents of church doctrines this week uh, because of Google. I found a bunch of things to look at and to read and to just think, are these statements true that I would say? Let me look at really what churches are doing and not just go off of my assumption. In reality, I think what many churches are doing are choosing to be very broad in their doctrine. And what people then do is choose uh, when they have deeper questions, uh, they go to Google and they type them in and they try to find answers there from who knows who. Christians, that's not the way that we should function. Uh, We need to take clear doctrinal positions that we believe God has made clear, and we need to seek to communicate them for the good of one another and for the equipping of the church. Our doctrinal statement is not made for the purpose of declaring this is the truth. This has authority. This stands over all time as the statement of what the church should always believe. Now, as elders, we might believe that with conviction. This is the truth. Uh, This is good. But its authority is rooted on that we are seeking to express what the Bible says. We're seeking to have clarity in what the Bible teaches and to explain and to do that with terms that are understandable. Right? And in Timothy, we're warned about arguing over words. So a lot of churches or a lot of us as Christians, we use words to summarize truth. Right? You meet someone, they go, what kind of church do you go to? What do you do? You think of summary words. Uh, we go to a Reformed church. Well, if you have friends that are Reformed, they're going to ask more questions. You go, what does that mean to you? You're going to have to define that term, right? It's a good summary term because it, it means for us that we are Reformed in our soteriology. We're Reformed in our beliefs about salvation. The other people would say, oh, we're Calvinists. Yes, it is a summary term to say we are Calvinists in our soteriology. Uh, those summaries are incomplete, and they need more explanation uh, because we are not Reformed, and that we do not baptize infants. But we don't believe God has called people to baptize infants. We are credo-baptists, not paedo-baptists. Uh, we believe that people are baptized according, I, this is the way I remember it. it's not what the Greek or Latin or anything means, but their, their creed according to their confession, their belief of faith. And so we baptize those who believe. So even those summaries often, maybe sometimes, as you've been in the church and you've come to our church, and we're the only thing you know of reformed, and you tell people we're reformed, and they're like, "Oh, I didn't know you baptized your kids." And you're like, "That's what reformed means. It's what it means to them. It's what it's, in some ways, means historically if you're talking about the reformed church." And so these summaries are helpful, but what do they need? They need more explanation. They need clarity. And so our doctrinal statement doesn't list those terms. It could, it could say we are uh, those who believe in Calvinism or Reformed theology in soteriology. We are progressive dispensational premillennialists. We could say those things. It, maybe for you that's helpful. Maybe this morning you just found out. We're progressive dispensational premillennialists. Maybe you're still wondering what I'm saying. And that's the important thing, that terms need to have clarity. So in our What We Teach document, you will not find those terms. What you will find is the description of our belief that if you're seeking to summarize things, you might end up with those terms. And so you will see, what do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? What do we believe about the church? And you will find in that detailed explanations of those things. You will find detailed explanations in an outline form with verse references of why we believe those things. So why do we have this type of clarity in doctrine? Because we want this to be a tool to you. This is not something that we want to hold over you saying, This is the absolute truth. Stop reading your Bible and read our doctrinal statement. We have a doctrinal statement for two reasons. Clarity of the truth and equipping of the saints. If you have a biblical question, I would assume our doctrinal statement probably addresses it. The questions that you might turn to Google for, you could probably first look to the doctrinal statement and say, What passages should I read? Where should I go? What should I think about this? And Christians have done this historically. They've communicated the truth to one another in summary form to encourage one another, to point one another to the scriptures. Because we have the ease of resources, we've become lazy. And we just want to find the answer from anyone and accept the answer that we like. Rather than with those resources, we could dig deep into the word of God and find and wrestle with what is true. And so the doctrinal statement is one to give you something that you could look to to say, you know what, I'm wondering about this. And maybe even you disagree with us on a particular point. That's okay. But you can know clearly where we stand and the passages that would compel us to that. So you can look at that. It's for all of these reasons that we believe that it is a narrow gate and we should pursue to know the truth. We want to truly know Christ and that he has given us authority in his word. We believe we are called to make disciples and disciples are made not by a vague direction toward Christ but to live to obey his specific commands to be faithful to him. We believe that we should be praying for one another not just in our daily struggles but that we would gain knowledge and mature and be faithful and be rooted deep in the truth of Christ. And we believe this is the job of the church on earth to root the church, to hold firm, to hold fast to the confession of their hope that we would be those who rest in the truth. And we are aware that none of us, none of us, have the ability to hold all truth in our mind at all times. It is why God gave us the word recorded historically for us. It is the only authoritative word on earth. This is the authority of God. But it's also why God gave us the ability to write and to record and to reflect and to dwell. That we could go back and look at the doctrinal statement and say, okay, as I studied this, as I looked through this, these are the things that are important. This is for the equipping of the church, and it is for clarity and communication. And so this morning, as we continue to to work on doctrine, there's specific doctrines I want to address with you. I I would encourage you, and if you are pursuing membership, uh, it is uh, asked and required and will be questioned of you. Did you look through the doctrinal statement? It's not a book. It is written in an outline form, but it is to look through and say, what are these truths that we believe in as Christians? Do I affirm these truths? Do I have any disagreements? Is there any area I want to discuss? And many of them, they might be, I never thought about this before. I don't know where I fall on this. I've never even looked at it or thought about it. And that's what the doctrinal statement is for, to to have those discussions. Because the whole church and the local church needs doctrinal clarity in the Word of God. The whole church and the local church needs doctrinal clarity in the Word of God. You want to talk to other Christians about truth, do you not? You want to talk to your unbelieving neighbors about the truth, do you not? You want to proclaim the truth to them. Christian, you will have more confidence in proclaiming the truth if you have handled the Word of God rightly, if you know the truth, and you can point them to the truth. You can stop using the summary terms, and you can just go and say, let's look at this together, right? If you have a debate and discussion with your paedo-baptist friends or family, it should not be one that is rooted in arrogance and personal positions and personal convictions and personal beliefs. It should be one that is rooted in Scripture. It is one that says, you know what, I don't see the baptism of infants in Scripture. Can you help me to see that? Can I point out to you passages that would cause me to believe that this is for believers? Can we look together to work through this together? That is when Christians get unity. Unity is found in moving together towards Christ and the clarity of what Christ has commanded and what he has said to us is held within the scriptures. So Christian, do you want to be better at engaging other Christians and the world in the truth? Yes. Then you need to know the word of God. You are responsible to. He has given it to you and given you such great access to it. And also you are blessed to be able to hold to this with conviction and confidence, knowing this is not your own ideas. This is rooted in the truth of the gospel. This is rooted in the truth of scripture, the promises of the Messiah, the revelation of God to man. That frees you, Christian, to be a servant of the Lord rather than someone who is quarrelsome, rather than someone who fights from philosophy and their own ideas, someone who says, look, this is why I do it, why I do, because I'm convicted by the Word of God. And someone who is openly and willingly can say, can you show me from the Word of God anything that should change my conviction in this? Christian, this is why Baptists and Presbyterians can get along. They disagree in many things. They disagree over all kinds of theology. The most blaring is who should be baptized. How can they get along? Because they both say the scripture is the authority. Our interpretation is rooted in longing to be true to the word of God. So they have a common ground for discussion. The word of God. And it's helpful to have that discussion in the word of God. Because the word of God is clear. Believers should be baptized just for my, my pedo friends. And, and I would love to go to the word of God with him. Here's the difficulty. I know it's a fine line, right? It's a real fine line of where your heart's going to be in that argument and debate. It is a very fine line from when are you going to turn from pointing someone to the word of God to quarreling over opinions. Well, I think one way to do that is when you lose confidence in what you're saying when you feel attacked, when you, you make it personal rather than in love for them and wanting the scripture to be clear, it's in love for yourself and wanting to be right. And you're frustrated and you don't like it when people disagree with you because you're so smart and gosh darn it, people like you. And why don't they like you now? You become now, you have quarrels and divisions and all these things in personal opinions, personal desires and often sinful ones rather than rooted in the truth. So the church needs the truth that we might discuss with one another, that we might have doctrinal depth, so that when we have Christians we disagree with, we can say, can we go to the word of God together? And I think what often happens when we say those things is because churches have communicated broad doctrine and not taken stances on anything, they have been ambiguous, then when we discuss that with other Christians, what happens? Christians go... Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you to say that God? Who are you to do this? They're defensive because they don't have confidence either. We need to humble ourselves. We need to point to the word as the truth. And so as we talk about the church and membership, the doctrine that I pulled from our doctrinal statement is our doctrine of the church. If you look on the last page of your handout, what you will see there is the doctrine of the church. I think it's important that you look over the entire doctrinal statement, whether you are pursuing to become a member or you're just an attender here. You should know what we believe. We are not trying to keep it secret what we believe. And we think that God has been clear enough that we can be clear about many things that we would hold with confidence as elders and members in a church. But even on the issue of church government, churches often... Uh, And I cannot judge their motivation, but they remain ambiguous in something that I don't think is biblically ambiguous. They remain very broad in something that I think the Bible is very clear about. And so if we're going to function as a local body, we need to have clarity on what we are and also how we're organized. What are we to do? And we want to root that clarity in scripture. I was surprised as I looked through many doctrinal statements uh, that were true, but I think not complete. They're not giving clarity to the people. One read that the church is the body of Christ. I agree. The habitation of God through the spirit. I agree. The divine commission to make disciples of Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom on earth. Agreed. Every person who is born in the Spirit is an integral part of the church as a member of, a bo- of the body of believers. There is a spiritual unity of all believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. In quotes, that's the entire statement on the church. What is the church? All of those statements are true, but what does that mean? Why do they gather on a Sunday? Who, who is leading the church and who's there? What is the church built? For? If it's built around Christ... Why do we do the things we do? Why do I preach or Danny or Daniel preach every week? Why do we do these things? Another one said, we believe church government should be simple rather than complex bureaucracy with the utmost dependent upon the spirit to lead rather than on the fleshly promotion of worldly wisdom. Again, I agree, but there is a lack of clarity there. What does that mean? And I thought that one was particularly revealing of how this normally plays out in churches. We believe the government should be simple rather than a complex bureaucracy. So there shouldn't be a whole bunch of of committees and meetings and all of these things. I agree with that. But the answer is with the utmost dependent upon the spirit rather than on fleshly promotion or worldly wisdom. So how do you know as a church if you're depending upon the spirit or you're depending on worldly wisdom? How do you function as a church knowing I'm depending upon the Spirit of God, we are depending on the Spirit of God together, or we're depending on worldly wisdom for the organization of the church? How do you answer that question? I think sadly how it's answered often is revealed again in another church statement. They give a general, uh, normal statement about who the church is. The church is... Local, faith-filled community of worshipers who are united as an intentional community of disciples who are learning to live out the gospel together, okay? But then, in that statement, it says that this statement should not serve as a guide to all that we understand and believe. The topics are provided as a summary, should not be taken as our complete belief structure. The regular teachings of our senior pastor give a more complete understanding to these statements, And so what is the doctrinal statement? The doctrinal statement is that the man, Moses, in this model of church that often functions, is the declarer of the truth of God. So these are our broad Christians' faiths. How do you know what we truly believe? You listen every Sunday, and what he says is what we believe. Christian, that is dangerous for that man and for that church. Let your faith and your belief and the truth not be dependent on hearing me preach for an hour or two or three on a Sunday morning. The the word of God has not been written so that you would just hear the preaching of it and rest your hope in that. Again, I do not say this because I think we're better than these churches, but I think they are failing to see the truth. And if I could, and I plan to with some of them, to debate with them over Scripture to say, but wait, friend. I agree we must be dependent upon the Spirit, but how do we depend? Because here's what often happens in churches. We're dependent on the Spirit translates into we are dependent upon the head pastor's understanding of how the Spirit of God is leading him. We are dependent upon what he thinks God is telling him. And, and so rather than Christ be the head of the church, and I do not say this to bash my brothers who are faithfully seeking to lead churches... But if you believe, depending on the Spirit, is just whatever you think the church should be doing, and that the will of God and the Spirit of God is within you for you to lead the whole direction of the church, you are putting yourself and God's people in grave danger. He has not been so unclear. How do we depend upon the Spirit? We listen to the Spirit of God written in the Word of God as He has been clear about the structure of the church. He has not left it ambiguous. He has been very clear. Very clear. We can be far more clear than just using broad terms to say we're a community of worshipers we can be far more clear than saying that we don't want to fall into worldly wisdom we just want to depend on the spirit i understand the truth in those terms but the lack of clarity leaves grave danger to how that functions in the church and in our valley growing up here i've i've seen it destroy churches and families because men have felt like i am the spirit of god They have with good intention become arrogant and fallen to sin and led people wrongly and given their lives to adultery rather than to the worship of Christ. They were in grave danger because they spoke ambiguously about what God has said but did not root themselves in the deep truth of what God has said that he might care for them and his church. I'm not crying, you're crying. (laughs) See, we just get defensive when we don't know what to do. We just make weird statements of people. All right. This is important, and it's important that we define this and we clarify it for the good of the church. We, We want to pursue to follow Christ as he has called us to. And we want to encourage other believers with the truth of the word of God, so if I could this morning compel you uh, to seek to follow along on, on this outline of the doctrine of the church with me. And pray that God would give grace as we pursue to be faithful in this. First, we must define the church. We must define it. And we have spent time in previous weeks doing that. Let me just point to you an outline form. The church is the body of Christ. You can see that in many statements of Scripture. The church is the body of Christ meant to function together. It consists of born-again believers in the church age, that there are those who have been called and saved or his are regenerate. The church in our belief is distinct from Israel. We believe Scripture is very clear. There is a difference between the nation of Israel and God's calling of Gentiles that there are two distinct things going on there. One, a declaration that man cannot be saved even if God gave him the law and the prophets and everything else, he would be arrogant and faithless and foolish. And through it, God promises a Messiah. And in God's mystery and grace, he does not just save Israel, but he fulfills what he had promised in Abraham that he would save the nations. The gospel becomes inclusive as it is promised that everyone can be called. It is proclaimed to all but those who respond are faithful. You can look at further details in A, B, C, and D, why we would say there are distinctions from the church in Israel. And so then what do we define the church as? The church is particularly Christians called in this age, after the return of the Messiah, to be together, unified together, to proclaim the gospel together, born-again believers. The definition, which my brothers in many doctrinal statements have done well in defining... But the organization is also clear. Christ is the head of the church. He is ultimate in authority. I want to point you back to Colossians chapter 1 that we looked at. It proclaims his preeminence. And it says, where is his preeminence shown? And that he is the head of his church. Local assemblies are the New Testament pattern. As you read through the scripture, and there are cross-references there, there are local assemblies of churches. It is the way the church has functioned from the beginning. It is how Paul proclaimed and preached. It is how they begun at Pentecost to gather and to be those who would locally gather together. And then the church functionally has three parts that function now on earth. Christ is the head over all the church, but as we function together as a church under Christ, we have three parts, two leadership and one everybody. So leadership has two parts, elders, and this is a team of biblically qualified men who shepherd, oversee and lead a local body of believers. An elder, a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, all the same thing in scripture. As you look at those passages, you will see these words are used interchangeably to describe the same men. There are not some men who are a particular pastor and some men who are just the board of directors under it. We don't see that description anywhere in scripture. We see pastor, shepherd, overseer, all used interchangeably, speaking of a plurality of men. We do see that there are particular men who are gifted and called uh, and are supported by the church, uh, and that is a humbling truth for myself that there are men where we say uh, it is for the best interest of the church that this man would be supported to devote his time and work to the church. And so there are men we are not opposed to supported ministry clearly, uh, but Do you think that there is purpose in that, that God has given that? And we we do not look to just build a bureaucracy based on if we grow our staff, we could grow our body. Uh, But we take true what he says in that there are men who are worthy of double honor, or men who are worthy uh, to be both honored as teachers and honored in provision for the purpose of proclaiming the word of God. Again, you could view those references. Elders are to be the primary examples through serving. Elders are not to be men who just stand over the church. They are to be men who are faithful in the church, men who are faithful examples in their lives. Elders are not just to be charismatic speakers. We're not just looking that a man can speak and preach and people will follow him. There are qualifications. Elders are qualified. They are to be men who are above reproach. And there are lists of qualifications you could look in 1 Timothy, in Titus, uh, and in 1 Peter. That you could see, these men are to be called specifically with a purpose. So we would summarize that. Let me summarize that: elders would lead in shepherding, in equipping, in doctrine, and direction. And so, elders are responsible to lead in the teaching of God's word as examples to the whole body. They're to do so in plurality. For us, this means unanimity, which is really hard to say. Uh, that we speak, we seek to make all decisions unanimously. And if we cannot make a unanimous decision together, then we hold off on that. It causes us to move slowly. It causes us to move very slowly. Often I have people text me and ask questions of, Hey, Jake, can, can we do this? Or can we do that? Or can we do this? And often my response is, let me talk to the elders. And then uh, I communicate with the elders. And then we've got to meet, we've got to talk, we've got to try to text. We've got to, these men are busy and working hard. It takes time to discuss. And then if there's any kind of disagreement or we've got to work through that, we're going to take the time to work through that. And so we don't function in a way, uh, not because we think that that's what will work best. We, yes, it, we might move way faster if I just made every decision, but we're all in trouble, right? we wouldn't have a tent, we'd be sitting in the rain and I'd be like, you love Jesus, love it. Jesus died on the cross for you. Praise God, we have multiple elders that are like, Jake. You can love Jesus and have a 10. It's okay. It's all right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys are right. You can't do that. There's nice, faithful men. And so we work through those things together. So it's going to take time. It's going to take uh, deliberation. It's going to take uh, decisions moving forward and doing that. But elders are those men who are called and qualified to purpose together to oversee the direction of the church and to defend the truth. Titus one nine that they would hold fast to the faithful word and to rebuke those who contradict it. And so elders particularly lead in doctrine and direction. We also see in the church in 1 Timothy, not included in Titus, but in 1 Timothy, deacons. This word just means servant. It's just servant, but it is servant in a capitalized way. It's to say that this is the servant or a servant in such a way that they are an example. These are people who are called to be examples, men who are called to be examples, to minister to the church in areas of service. We see examples of this in Acts 6 with the apostles calling uh, the seven, including Stephen and Philip, that these men would work purposely so that the apostles could devote themselves to teaching and preaching. And it appears in 1 Timothy, the same idea exists. The book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, in which the book was written to, uh, was a larger and older church. It was functioning in lots of ways. There was a lot to be done. There was a lot of people. It was a big church. They needed men who could carry responsibility as examples. And deacons are called to be those men. The only requirement that is not put on deacons, that is put on elders, is the ability to teach. Or the aptitude. All Christians should be teachers, but deacons are not required to be teachers of the word. They're required to be servants of the church. And so they're they're to serve faithfully in the same way that all Christians serve. But these are particularly recognized to be examples to the church of Christian service. These are men who have shown faithfulness in such a way that we say not only are they examples to everyone of how we should serve, But these men are also those who should carry the responsibility of service. And so they are given authority to lead in things, to make decisions for things. These are men that are tested. Elders are tested, but there is specific writing uh, that deacons may be tested. So when we appoint a deacon, we bring it to the church. And we say, uh, we're looking at this man, and we think this man should be a deacon as elders. And we want to give you time to communicate with us if you think that is true. And look at these qualifications and work through these things together. Because God has designed the church to function in this way. It is a very simple design. In leadership, it is very, I think, gracious of God and designed in plurality, is very protective of the church. It elevates no man, elevates Christ. It is faithful in that deacons would be potential or available. If you notice in Titus, there's no mention of deacons. Titus uh, is writing is written to a man who is in Crete and it's a new church he is not working with the elders in Crete as Timothy is in Ephesus but he is establishing elders in Crete under the authority of Paul and there's no mention of deacons it was something as an early church you thought do we need deacons do we have to have deacons and, and studying the word of God and looking and came to the conclusion of no deacons aren't a requirement elders are a requirement of the church there is no church If they're not elders leading, that's God's design that elders would lead. We see that in the book of Acts. uh, Acts 13 and 14 to be specific if you want to look it up. But deacons are not mentioned. It appears that deacons are for the function of the church to function under the oversight of elders and to be examples to the church. Do you notice the overall characteristics of this? That these men are to function not just for the purpose of accomplishing leadership. Right? This is not just we want the church to grow and progress. We want the church to be organized and functional. So we need the most organizationally functional men. No. It's rooted in character. These men are to be examples to the church. And they are both protected in plurality and qualified before all. And so two parts of leadership, elders and deacons, and those are the two areas of leadership that function. In the congregation, all believers are commanded to be part of the local assembly of Christians. All believers served, all believers are called to serve one another in a local body, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to exercise their spiritual gifts. The ministry of each believer is necessary for the full maturity of the church. We've seen this in Romans and Ephesians and other places. God has given you spiritual gifts to function in. You don't carry maybe the necessary, uh, necessarily the same responsibility of an elder who will give an account for souls, of a deacon who is living in a bubble, who is watched by all as an example of faithful service. But because you don't have the responsibility before people, doesn't mean you don't have the responsibility in Christ right? These men serve as examples. Why? Because we are all to serve in the same way. And the church is given gifts for that purpose. And so we are clear about the purpose of the congregation. The congregation is not just to be observers. They are not come to be served, but to serve. And we serve together. We function as a church uh, not just as a generic gathering, but a purposed gathering under the leadership of elders and the service of deacons that we all might all serve in order for the body to mature. And so we looked at this in previous weeks, but I just want to remind you again, uh, you have been gifted purposely by God. That you were gifted specifically in, in maybe both, maybe one, maybe various areas uh, that would categorize what all Christians are to do to speak the truth and to serve in the truth. First Peter 4 says that you have gifts of both speaking and acts of service, and you are to be examples of those. All Christians are responsible to speak and to serve, but all Christians are also gifted in particular ways to be an encouragement to us all that we might speak and serve better. I was reminded just this morning, by a faithful believer who loves me that says, hey, I think this is the first time you talked to me in like a year on a Sunday morning. You might talk to me other times, but you just kind of jet by. And praise God that this was the analogy that I already knew I would use this morning because another faithful believer said that to me about 12 years ago. They say, hey, you just jet by. The Word of God says greet one another. You're not greeting. You just go. And I, in sin and defensiveness, responded, what are you, a 16-year-old girl? You need me to stop and hold your hand every time I walk by? Come on, dude, leave me alone. And I left, and the Spirit of God convicted me and said, what are you doing? A brother loves me, and he's saying, hey, man, think about other people around you. When I'm just thinking, I've got to get my kids to Sunday school. I hate being late. I want to get to church on time. We should have left earlier. What's going on? I'm walking back. I'm checking kids in. I don't have time to chit-chat with you. I've got to go worship God. I got all kinds of justification in my mind. What if knowing I was called to greet one another, rather than showing up in church on a daze, trying to shuffle at that time only three kids to get them somewhere, I was intentional to know, hey, I'm responsible to leave my family. I'm also responsible to greet the saints, to love them. What if I was intentional to get there early enough to get my kids checked in without the feeling of pressure that I'm walking in late? Never crossed my mind until a man was faithful enough to tell me, hey, we're to greet one another. It's an example of the faithfulness of that man, a man who, who sees that focus so much. Many of us have that type of uh, gifting and that we're merciful and compassionate. We think of others, right? Many of us have gifting where we're thinking about truth and we're thinking about doctrine. And we're thinking about speaking. And we need one another To be serious about both. God has gifted you in particular ways. And those ways encourage other Christians to be more faithful. I don't just teach so that you can hear me teach and say, Jake's a good teacher, right? You probably hear me teach and say, Jake talks too long. But my hope in teaching is that you would be able to teach others better. That you would teach your children and your friends and your family better. That you would know the word of God better. The men who serve in setting up don't serve just so that it can be set up for us. But they serve in such a way that is an example that we all might serve better. The people who are merciful and hospitable and compassionate to others aren't just hospitable and merciful and compassionate so that the body has some mercy and hospitality, but so that we could all have examples of, say, we could be more hospitable, more compassionate, more faithful, more merciful there are those who are generous in ways that many of us are not and they are examples to us to say we could all afford to be more generous as God has called us to be the body is gifted and functions in gifting that the whole body might mature my hope is that you will see the importance not just in the church but in all doctrine we want to have clarity that we can have confidence And that we are pursuing to move forward in Christ. Dependent upon Him. And dependent means, yes, both. That we trust and pray and look for the Spirit to give us clarity. And we have confidence that He has given clarity in His Word. We can always trust the authority of His Word. And so let me encourage you this morning to think about, to dwell about the church, what the church is, how the church is organized, and how you fit into that plan of God. How do you faithfully serve in that? What ways might God be encouraging you to be more faithful, more clear, more purposed? Take the things that God has been clear about and make them your responsibility. To live out and to pass to your children. To point to and to understand in the scripture. The secret things belong to God. But the things that he has revealed to us belong to us. And we should hold fast to them. We should not seek to be ambiguous but clear about them. We should want clarity in them so that we can encourage and help others to move forward and have clarity. And that is our prayer. It is why we seek to be clear about doctrine to help equip the saints, to be accountable to the saints in what we teach, and that God might give us all the grace to have confidence as we long to proclaim the truth in both depth and summary at all times in our actions and our words to those around us and to one another that Christ might be glorified in all things. So let me pray for us that God would give grace as we seek to do this Uh, to pursue, uh, to love him, to be faithful. We pray that he would show such compassion to us that we might do so even more faithfully. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Father, that the secret things do belong to you. We thank you, Lord, that we are not given all knowledge and all understanding. But thank you, Father, that you have not left us without knowledge. That you have given and, and proclaimed to us that we might know you. I pray, Father, you would help us to uh, pursue to know that better. Not that we might be arrogant, but that we might be compassionate and faithful as you are compassionate and faithful. pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity and grace. I pray that you would help us as we continue to dwell on what it means to be your church, what it means to be called to serve you. I pray you would give us grace that we might do so well and with clarity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.